time when film criticism is as provocative as ever, Feelin' Film ventures to change the discussion from what we hate about a film to what we love about it. We judge more on emotional experience than technical merit, because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome everyone to episode 22 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Aaron, here with Patrick. What's up everybody? And we are your hosts for the show. Today we're going to be discussing one of the better received films of 2016, debut director Dan Trachtenberg's 10 Cloverfield Lane. But before we do, just a couple of quick announcements. And number one on that list is very important. Next week we will be doing a listener's choice. That's right, you get to pick the movie for our next episode. Now, we are only providing three options for this one. And so you can't add to this one like we have in the past, but it's entirely up to you guys, our listeners, as to what you want us to talk about next. The only way to vote is to join the Facebook group, and the poll is up now and will remain up through uh, September 7th, I believe. A link to the Facebook group is in the show notes and will also be all over our social media feeds. So come get involved in the conversation and let us know what you want us to cover next week. I don't know about you, man, but I'm really excited to see which of our options the listeners pick, Uh, no matter what movie wins. I mean, it's going to be a fun week. One other quick announcement is that we wanted to say thank you for all of the awesome feedback we've gotten on iTunes. Your ratings and reviews there are probably the most impactful thing in helping others find out about the show, and your kind words really blow us away. If you do love the show and you want to help other people discover it, Um, That's really the number one thing you can do. Leave some words on iTunes for other people to see. Heck, uh, you may just hear us read your reviews on the air one day. We've done it in the past, and it's a fun thing we probably will do again in the future. Absolutely. Well, I think the housekeeping is in order, my friend. So uh, why don't we go ahead and get started with the regular stuff? Uh, What have you been up to in the world of entertainment this past week? Well, I think we've actually been up to some similar things. Um, with the very unfortunate passing of Gene Wilder this past mm. week, uh, yes. both of us felt, I don't want to say obligated, um, but we compelled. Both, compelled, compelled, compelled is a great word. We both felt compelled to, uh, revisit some of his work that we really connected with. And so ironically, or surprisingly, uh, we both chose to watch Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I mean, I'm not saying that that's you know, totally of a shocker of a choice. You know, it is widely probably regarded his best role um, and what he's most known for. But um, we both watched it this week, and I and, I, and that was really cool experience uh, for anyone that is following the show on social media. I actually posted this stuff out, and I live tweeted and also live kind of commented the same thing in the Facebook <laughs> group on a post as I was doing the the Willy Wonka rewatch, and I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, I got really excited halfway through the movie. Um, it just so much chocolate and candy that I actually paused and drove to uh, the gro- the drugstore down the street and got myself some chocolate bars. I was I was kind of bummed that they didn't have any everlasting gobstoppers, uh, or I would have grabbed Sick. those. I know, sad world. I know. I ate <laughs> I ate another kind of chocolate during the Willy Wonka movie. It's kind of <laughs> like sacrilege. It really is. <laughs> you but, should not admit that stuff. <laughs> I, I probably shouldn't. It's it now. It's now. It's here forever. Yeah. But I really enjoyed it, man. I don't know about you. I'll I'll get your take on it too. But I just, I guess I haven't rewatched it that many times since I've been an adult. 
and I liked it better than I remembered it even. Mm -hmm. It it just, it was such a fantastical world that's created and kind of tuning into Wilder's uh, Willy Wonka character this time in a much more intentional way. His performance just jumps off the screen at you and you realize Mm -hmm. how amazing uh, of an actor he was and, and what incredible work he did, especially in that role. Um, I So I actually watched uh, Blazing Saddles later in the week as well, uh, revisited that one. That was a good, fun time. But Willy Wonka was the highlight of my week. Just highly recommend anybody out there that hasn't you know seen it. If you haven't seen it, you darn well need to see it. Uh, the music's great. The story's great. The performances are awesome. Uh, and if you haven't seen it recently, you should watch it again. Did you have a similar take on it? I totally did, man. I really I, I wanted to do a whole podcast on this. And uh, had I had the means, I would have really done that. Absolutely. Gene Wilder's an interesting, he was an interesting actor because uh, he, I, I don't know if he did this, but in my mind, in the way I see his comedy, I think he really influenced guys like Chevy Chase, Steve Martin, Martin Short, those guys that had that dry sense of humor and just delivering deadpan lines that just sound as an adult you're watching this and you're just I'm laughing out loud because I'm like that was hilarious like and just some of the some of the lines that he emitted you know you can see that comedy play out in things like Blazing Saddles and See No Evil Hear No Evil with Richard Pryor and um, I was inspired by that and ended up watching Three Amigos this week with the trio of, of Chevy Chase, Steve Martin and Martin Short appreciating it more because of that similar comedic style. The movie itself is not necessarily Oscar worthy, but in the same vein, I didn't appreciate that kind of comedy until I specifically, you know, looked at Gene Wilder as a comedian um, in light of his passing this week and can definitely appreciate the other styles, the other comedians that have come along after him that use that same kind of deadpan delivery. And so I, I will greatly miss him. I think he's just a, he was a fantastic actor. He was a very had a very wide range, known for comedy primarily, but had a great wide range of of acting chops. And so I'll definitely miss what he brought to the table. I will as well. Uh, the good thing about when actors do pass, uh, well, I guess it's not the good thing, but the uh, the nice thing, I guess, in a way, is that we will always have their art that they gave us, and we can always go mm-hmm. back and watch that stuff again. Whereas, you know. Some other folks like you or me, there may not be so much left after uh, we're gone for people <laughs> to come back and reminisce on. They can maybe they can go through my Facebook feed or something if they want to remember me. <laughs> well, I guess they have the podcast now. They have the podcast and they have the Pokemon Go for you oh, and yeah. uh, maybe maybe reviews of documentaries from me or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> Very nice. Well, that was the highlight uh, for my movie watching the rest of the week. I did watch some other stuff, but that was the main thing. What I what I watched as well, though, was I rewatched this movie that we're going to be talking about tonight. I rewatched it twice <laughs> this week in preparation for the podcast, and that is something that I simply do not do. I, I don't do it normally. I don't do it. Um, for the podcast specifically, but after rewatching 10 Cloverfield Lane midweek, I just was blown away all over again. It's, it's very hard for me to accurately describe how much this movie impacts me 
because I fully don't understand it, or I don't completely know why it is doing this to me, but uh, it's just one of those that connects to me in a big, big way. And so the day after I watched it, I came home and I was just feeling very compelled to watch the director's commentary. Uh, Part of that is because this one is not done by just our director, Dan Trachtenberg, but it's also done by J.J. Abrams. He is the producer of the film, and so he, he pops in on the commentary track. And that was exciting. Just, you know, we both have a a big love of JJ's stuff and I wanted to hear what he had to say about this film. You know, it's something that is along the lines of um, his typical movie making type outside of the Star Trek type universe, you know, uh, where he's making these mysteries and these, these movies that make you think and, and have interesting qualities to them when dealing with realities and dimensional changes and all kinds of just wacky stuff and uh this one just the commentary was great so i rewatched it twice and very cool man yeah i'm i'm pumped to talk about it i this is my favorite movie of 2016 so far 10 cloverfield lane so patrick what do you think of it because i have not heard your thoughts in a nice uh detailed way at all yet (laughs) <laughs> well, when we saw this, I, I believe we saw this, um, not together, obviously, because we live in two different time zones, but I think we saw it close together in terms of the time frame. And, um, I got your gut reaction from it without the spoilers before I saw it. And so I went in with, uh, with a good amount of expectation with the same kind of excitement that you had, because it's an Abrams uh, joint or <laughs> in the Phantom Spike Lee or whatever. But I knew what Cloverfield was about. I got to see it. And I remember coming out of it going, well, that was interesting. <laughs> and when we had made this our pick for this week, I think you and I talked offline and I said, this is sort of my second chance pick because I didn't love it like you did. I mean, it was very good. And there was a lot that um, that I really, really gravitated towards but i think and i'm going to go into this by prefacing this by saying this is spoiler territory we're about to get heavy into it and this is one of the one of the episodes where i'm going to lay down the gauntlet and say this is definitely a place where if you haven't seen the movie please stop right now and go see it (laughs) because the big the big reveal at the end is 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 one of the places that that i got a little derailed uh the last 10 minutes of the film didn't quote ruin the film for me, but it really took me out of it. And at that point, before that point, this thing was four and a half stars for me, almost five stars. And then after the, the, the epic fight with the alien coming out of the theater that it dropped down a a star, star and a half, because I was having all these questions about, okay, why was that? What, what, what's going on? But you and I talked after that and one of the things that you brought to light to me is this idea of understanding the vision of the director. And this is sort of what drives our show is understanding the value of the art. So after we talked a little bit about it, seeing it the second time around this week, I I can't say that it blew my mind the second time, but it was definitely better because I had this understanding of what, Trachenberg and company were trying to do, um, 
I believe that for the most part they succeeded. But at the same time, it, it was still kind of a kind of a cinematic eyesore for me. Even knowing what was coming, I appreciated it and and liked a lot more about the movie as a whole. And so if I were to give it, if it went from three and a half, it would be it would bump up to a four star for me. Like I it gained a half star because of that background that I that I know about from reading articles and interviews with him. Um, the short answer is I liked it a lot. This is not one that I would say, don't go see it if you don't like this or that. Uh, it's not on the level that that you that you have by far. Uh, listeners, I'm going to tell you this. Uh, we typically have maybe about three pages of notes. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you that there are significantly more than three pages of notes, and most of them are done by the contributions of my of my friend here. But I will say this. Everything that I believe I've read, not only in our notes, but also um, in articles, makes, makes the movie a lot more enjoyable. Not necessarily, I mean, not just from a cinematic experience, but having that understanding of, again, what's, what's happening or what, what the vision of the director was, I appreciate it a lot more. Well, I'm glad. I'm, I'm, I'm very, very glad to hear that. For me, it's actually similar. Uh, the movie does kind of change by about a star to a one and a half stars based on the ending. The difference is that it goes from a five star movie to a six and a half star movie <laughs> in my book. Um, it, it, the ending of this film truly does transport you one way or the other. It is a divisive thing, and mm-hmm. that's something that we'll we'll probably die, you know get to talk about in detail. Uh, when we discuss that and, and what we think was being done and what we prefer, because it, it does, it, it makes you go one way or the other, generally speaking. And they knew that they knew that going in. And for me, it was the opposite. You know, it, it made mm-hmm. it, it made it go from one of the best movies of this year to one of my favorite movies ever. Mm-hmm. Based, I think go go ahead. Ahead. <laughs> I was just, I was just going to say that um, when, what you're describing, I think, is an amplification of one of the big themes in the movie, and that's this idea of disorientation. As an audience, we are completely disoriented at that 180. I mean, we don't know what's. I mean, we don't know that there's aliens out there. We don't know that there's not. But at at that point in the movie, we're not expecting it. So when we see the big giant alien coming out of nowhere, it's very disorienting. And I, I honestly believe that's exactly what Trachtenberg and company wanted us to feel. Very disoriented. They wanted us to feel um, how Winstead, as as her character, was feeling. And so, from a guy who, maybe from a from a spectator, didn't appreciate it. From a from a participant in the movie experience, it was it was exactly what I think they wanted me to feel. Yes, I agree. I think that they they did nail what they were going for. And whether that resonates with everybody or not, it was true to what they believe the movie should be, um, mm. which we talk about all the time here. The, the other thing I wanted to say about this one, though, here just kind of laying things out before we go deep, is that this is a film for me where a certain level of immersion of 
conversation about the movie and interviews and reading about the movie um, has really enhanced this the the way that I feel about this film. And this is not the case for every movie I watch. Um, most movies I watch, I don't have any desire to seek out extra information on. Some that I really enjoy, I do, and uh, I get you know some pleasure out of that, and it, it makes things better. But this one specifically. I've listened to so many interviews by Dan Trachtenberg and I was already familiar with him from some of his earlier work. Uh, He got his, he got his start in commercials and specifically he did two, two shorts, one called more than you can chew uh, and another called portal, no escape and portal. Most people believe is probably what got him this job because it's, it's an amazingly done little short film. Uh, and it has, you know, a huge fan base portal of video game. So that's actually not quite how things went down. He got his meeting with Abrams and Bad Robot based on his more than you can chew short. And when you see it, I think you'll very clearly understand why. Uh, because the the way that that short film plays out, the content of it, and how he plays with your expectations in that, combined with then his later work in Portal, based on something that is also set in a confined space uh, with a female heroine, Shocker, uh, those two things really show in 10 Cloverfield Lane. And this this script just, it, it, it was such a perfect marriage. I, I can't tell you how lucky he must have feel, felt because when this script came to Bad Robot, I believe it was called uh, The Seller originally, and it, it didn't have quite the same story as it ended up happening. It certainly did not have the ending that it ended up having. Uh, but they put their twists on it. They got in there and rewrote some of it, and it became what we got. And I love it. And the more that I have read about it, the more commentary I've devoured, it's just taken it into this place of special territory for me. So let me ask you this. You mentioned that this is one of the few movies that you've gone beyond the film itself to find out more about the director, about the history of the, of the film. Why this one in particular, what is it about 10 Cloverfield Lane specifically that has compelled you to want to dive in to the backstory behind it and the director and such? Well, I think, the number one thing is the Abrams style. And I guess it's, it's kind of unfair in a way to say that because this movie is directed by Dan Trachtenberg, but Dan has been very forthcoming in interviews about some of the key things that Abrams came up with on the set. Uh, I'll mention some of them as we go, but just little nuanced decisions that he, he Abrams offhandedly would suggest something and, and it turned out to be an incredibly big deal in the film. And it was the way they went. So I'm going to attribute a lot of this movie to an Abrams type of movie. And I love the mystery box. And that's really what it is, is this is a mystery. It's got such deep characters that you get to explore and you don't fully, you don't fully know what to do with them. Uh, It's got characters that are not just one note. They're not 
one thing and one thing only. That is an, the huge theme in this film is dual, duality or, you know, the idea of two things being true at the same time, uh, specifically with Howard's character. And that for me makes me want to go deeper. It makes me want to go further. It makes me want to know more. Uh, and I just, I don't know. I, it's a good question. It's a good question because, you, you know, I could do this with anything. I have plenty of Blu-rays. I could get on there and watch the commentaries and watch all the special features. And 90% of them I don't think would really impact me that much. But for some reason, just finding out how they were able to so perfectly impact my movie viewing experience by sucking me into this thing and just twisting and turning me all over the place, it was such a great roller coaster ride. I wanted to know how they did it. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's right. I mean, that's definitely something that, I felt coming out of the movie experience because they're on the other end of that in typical Abrams style, there are going to be plot points and mysteries that never get solved. I know that he in particular lost gets a lot of credit for this where you have the team of Damon Lindelof and Carlton Cuse. I think they were the showrunners, but they were part of the JJ Abrams school of of mystery boxness and one of the frustrations that i for one had with lost was that there was a lot about the mystery of the island and and the smoke mines all these different things that were set up but were not paid off and of course you know you can argue why that is you know the fact that tv shows have a finite <laughs> uh, life lifespan because of ratings and whatnot but even in things like fringe one of his other shows um, that was, you know, had the showrunners, um, uh, the, I can't remember the, the guys now. Um, anyway, but, but they had that same issue where there were a lot of mysteries that were set up, just weren't paid off. There were more of them. And so there was more of a satisfactory conclusion. And I think that the mystery box, the idea of, uh, of having that unknown factor or several unknown things going on in a story can be a great thing and can be a terrible thing because of your expectations as, as an audience member. And I think that there, there were some questions that were left unanswered, but I know from my personal experience, they weren't, they weren't turnoffs for me. They didn't make the movie worse because I was like, well, wait a minute, what about this? And what about that? I mean, there were definitely questions that didn't get answered. And I think that that's sort of the, that's sort of the risk you take with the mystery box type of storytelling, because you're setting up a lot of things and you're almost being told, look, I'm not, you know, you're not going to get every answer. And that's not the point of the mystery box storytelling. The point is the, is going on the mystery and, and going on that journey with, with the characters and trying to figure out the same things that they're trying to figure out. And so it compels you. It makes you part of that story. And I think that's a strength of it for sure. Yeah, it, it is. It is definitely a strength of it because we get to go through Michelle's entire journey alongside her the film's cinematography plays to that the way that it shoots it the way that we hang on her it's it's interesting because she doesn't have a lot of dialogue either it's it's very limited in fact but it's Mm -hmm. the way that her character looks and acts uses expressions that tells us everything we need to know about her there's there's a scene early on in the film that is just it, it so powerful because when she first gets abducted and she wakes up in the cellar 
in her little room and she's uh, locked with her leg brace to the wall and she starts freaking out. She's rips the IV out of her arm. She's, she's doing what we all would do. She, we have no idea where we're at. We just know we're stuck somewhere and we don't know what's going on. And we're going to try to freak out and get out of there. And so she struggles against that. And then she quickly realizes that that's not going to get it done. And she has this moment where she just is up against the wall and she's breathing very deep and she's kind of hyperventilating. And then she just stops and she starts to slow her breathing and you can see it in her eyes and you can see it in her face. And it all of a sudden her fear and her anxiety just calm and turn to this complete dedication, this complete uh, sense of I'm going to now be methodical. I'm going to think about this. I'm going to be logical and I'm going to get myself out of this situation. And it, it sets us on this path of going with her as what Abrams described, I think is a great way to say this. He considers it the origin story of a heroine. And I loved hearing it put that way because that's exactly what this is to me. This is one of the strongest female characters you will see in cinema. And I, it's funny because it's in a world where that's something that a lot of people clamor for. And I'm not hearing it mentioned much, but people need to go see this. People need to talk about this because that's what you have here. Here you have a woman who is not helpless. She is resourceful. She is knowledgeable. She's intelligent. And she uses all of those things to mm-hmm. eventually get herself out of this situation. And yeah. it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing to watch, I think. Yeah, I, I would say that Blake Lively in The Shallows is a is is a competitive heroine to me in this in this sense that if I'm if I'm looking at movies that I've seen this year with strong female leads at the very least but also that heroine aspect um I believe that Michelle's character is stronger because of their their experience their experiences they're they're trying to get out of a situation but I see in both of them a lot of growth over the course of the film but that moment just like you mentioned was was the just the the starting gun of just seeing her get you know express her strength um and the fact that it was done without a lot of dialogue speaking speaking specifically about that opening sequence where there's no dialogue we just see visuals of her packing stuff we see her the trinket of the we see the, I guess the wedding ring the engagement ring so we're we're yep. we're we're creating this backstory from visuals and from facial expressions and then when we hear uh, we see her in the car and we hear her uh, her boyfriend call and we see her facial expressions of him just talking and we see her cut him off we see bits and pieces of this woman who is expressing independence she's expressing strength and i believe that helps foreshadow what we end up seeing with her as the movie progresses and eventually moving on because there's i don't think at any point i felt like she was weak i felt like she was afraid because i would probably be afraid if i were stuck in a bunker with a guy (laughs) with a guy like john goodman you know um but as far as being like 
weak versus strong. No, absolutely. I think I think her strength showed from the very beginning. No, she's she's definitely not very ever. She's never weak, which is is interesting because that's how she thinks of herself, and she talks of herself sometimes uh, to Emmett, uh, her compatriot there in the cellar, um, as if she was weak. But she she doesn't actually show that with her actions. So she kind of views herself that way sometimes, but uh, that's not how she is. She's an incredibly clever character. And I, I love the opening scene. Yeah, you mentioned it. I, it's, I, again, it's every scene of this film. I love, I can say that without, you know, any kind of um, hesitation, but the way that this movie opens with that and that quietness, it just, it's a great setup for what we're going to get later. Uh, this is not a film where things are always going to be told to us, you know, via dialogue. And that's what it's telling us right there. It's like, you need to watch the room. You need to pay attention. You need to look at the people's faces in, in this movie. And we see that, uh, fun fact for you, for the boyfriend mentioning the boyfriend uh, that calls. So if you didn't catch that, that's Bradley Cooper playing the boyfriend and the way that that actually went down is so Bradley worked with JJ Abrams on alias back in the day, one of Abrams's first ever projects. And so he called Bradley and asked Bradley if he would do this cinema script. Bradley recorded the audio on his own cell phone and then emailed it to the studio. So Bradley never actually talked to any of the actors. He just, he just recorded that bit of dialogue all on his own on a cell phone and then sent it to Abrams and it got put in to the actual film, which is just, it's just cool. I, I don't know. I think that's, that's, that's really awesome. And <laughs> a neat thing to do is to bring, you know, your actors back like that. Oh, for sure. Um, it's just a super subtle little cameo that mm-hmm. was pretty cool. Yeah. And then, you know, so leading up to that, then we get the car crash, right? And so Dude. this is one thing I know that Dude. you actually <laughs> I'm gonna let you go Dude. because I know that I know that for one thing that you actually love about this movie is this scene. Dude, the title card sequence. First of all, as a designer, I love fonts and the uses of fonts. And I thought the typography of the credits was was amazing. Seeing the the black again, this goes back to like midnight special. Just the block lettering of of the title itself and seeing the 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 I think it's the is the the L or the ten the the one of the ten uh, expanding to be anyway if you if you've seen the 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 title itself you know what I'm talking about but seeing that graphically played out is fantastic but this the the car crash and <laughs> just yes this is if if I could pick one thing that I absolutely loved it's this because it does two things one it entertains. I mean, I've never seen anything like that in terms of showing the Paramount Pictures presents 10 Cloverfield Lane or whatever. Uh, we're intercut between this woman getting hit and her car spinning crazy out of control. But it does the one big thing, one of the big themes of the movie, you're disoriented because you're like, what is going on here? Again, it's it's this great creative way of bringing out uh, disorientation to the audience and letting her letting us come in and experience this this just obscurity this what 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 in the world's going on here feeling that that she's feeling and i love how the rest of the movie 
pays that feeling off. How there are so many different iterations of that disorientedness, like her waking up and then uh, Howard drugging her at some point and her passing out and then waking back up later. I mean, I, I felt like I was kind of, you know, dazed with her at these points. I'm like, where am I? What's going on? And it plays into this what's going on outside because we see, you know, hints of what could possibly be. We see, you know, an abandoned truck. We see a crazy woman who's got some weird stuff happening with her face. And so we're making all of these assumptions in our head about what has happened. And the only semi-reliable person that we have is Howard (laughs) because he's giving us our only point of view of what might have happened. Um, But it all goes back to that title sequence of that disorientation and abruptness that we get throughout the film. Yep. That's exactly how I view it. And I remember being completely just blown away. It's one of the most unexpected experiences I've ever had in a movie theater. I was not looking for that. I was not waiting for that. She's driving along and all of a sudden it's, you know, chaos. And then the title sequence is popping up and it's just, what is gonna, I just, I was so confused i was so disoriented as you said it's it's what is going to happen now like what where am i what is happening in this movie Mm -hmm. you know at first i have no words being spoken and then i have this happening like what have i gotten myself into and another big part of that is going into this movie with no idea what it was going to be about the viral marketing on this sucker was fantastic Mm. Um, you know it's hard to keep a movie's production under wraps but they did it and the first time I remember seeing anything about it was, I believe, the Super Bowl. I think we actually texted back and forth about it. I saw an ad mm-hmm. during the Super Bowl, and I was like, wait a second, what? What is that? Is that a Cloverfield movie? And, of course, almost everyone, with the title being Tin Cloverfield Lane, assumed sequel to Cloverfield. Big monster Godzilla-type movie. You know, shaky cam-type style. And that's not what we got, you know, even in the slightest. But that's exactly what you I mean. Again, what you just said, again, echoes this what's going to happen next. We assume one thing and we get something else or we assume something and we get little tidbits of of that something, but mostly something else. And I remember hearing about this and going like you, is this a sequel? What's going to happen? And hearing hearing Abram say this is more of a distant cousin to Cloverfield. But we're still intrigued because the word Cloverfield sits in there. And the way that even Cloverfield came about out of nowhere, I remember seeing the trailer and going, what, 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 Cloverfield? And then, you know, you see Cloverfield and then the date that it's supposed to premiere, the same thing happened with this. And it's, it's just, it's, it's the magic of the mystery, even in the viral marketing. It is. And that, that title sequence, by the way, is one of the things that I was mentioning earlier that Abrams came up with. Uh, He just randomly suggested it one day to Trachtenberg. He's like, yeah, hey, why don't you do cut the, cut the title sequence with the car crash? And so Trachtenberg was like, yeah, that sounds like a cool idea. And when he's telling this story, he shows, he goes in in post-production and shows Abrams and some other people. He's showing them two different versions. One is the cut version with the, the sequence with the title cut in. And the other one is just a straight, you know, car crash. And then the title and, Abrams is like, yeah, you know, I, I like them both, you know, and and Dan's like, no, the the one with the cut in title is clearly better, 
you know, that was your idea. <laughs> and Abrams had no idea. He didn't remember it was his idea. And the way Trachtenberg is telling this is he's just in awe. He's, he's, he's talking about how Abrams did this all the time. And like, he's just such a natural, you know, talent with these things that he spits, spits out these random ideas that are awesome and they all work. And then he doesn't even remember saying them after the fact, <laughs> like he's, that's, that's the level of this guy's genius when it comes to this stuff. Yeah. So we get into the cellar and, um, we are now with Michelle and we're trying to figure out what's going on and how is she going to get out of this? And, and does she even need to get out of this or is getting out of this just something going to be worse? And so we get to Howard. I got to tell you, after rewatching this multiple times now, um, I was all aboard the uh, John Goodman for Best Actor train going in, and I am even more all aboard the John Goodman for Best Actor or Best Supporting Actor, whichever one that they're going to nominate him for. Uh, This is an Oscar-worthy performance is what I'm getting at. I am not familiar with a lot of John Goodman's work outside of, I think, Roseanne. That's what I know him from. So this was not what I expected, but I have seen very few performances that were as incredibly detailed as what he gives here. And the way that he can switch his character uh, back and forth between seemingly completely sane and bonkers nutso uh, is incredible. And I think he sells it in a way that, not many actors could have done because what he does is he makes us believe that he could be right. You know, that maybe there is something going on out there and we get this idea that, you know, in a vacuum without any information flow coming in, it's entirely possible that one might start believing what Howard is selling about the state of the world, no matter what, even though she knows she most likely has been abducted of some, some kind, she knows that, something's off about her ending up in this situation. Eventually, if all you know is what this guy is telling you, it would become your reality and you would just start to accept it. And he makes that happen. Mm-hmm. I, I just cannot, every time I watch it, I, I look for more and I watch his face and there are multiple times, you know, when he goes from calm to angry or when he just spits out lines of dialogue in a way that are so, so creepy (laughs) without meaning to be creepy. There's one particular scene that really is defining for him, in my opinion. And it's, it's kind of later in the film they're playing uh, a password, I think, or something. I think it's called password, but they're playing games and they're trying to get him to say woman, little women is what they're trying to get him to say. And he can't do it. He He's like, girl. And they're like, no, Michelle. Michelle. And he's like, little little girl, lady, you know, like. He, princess. He, princess. Princess, yeah. yeah. He can't say the word woman. And it's so telling right there in that moment that he's not 100% just crazy and evil. Like, part of it is a disability in a sense. Like, he does not see the world the same way. You know, he mm-hmm. see he has a, a problem, a big problem. It's not just a what likely is that he's kidnapped a girl before and may or may not have murdered her. We don't know what happened to the girl in the pictures. Um, but 
there's a sense here given to us that he's disturbed. Like he is the definition to me of what you could say is clinically insane. If you got on a witness stand, (laughs) you know, the way that, that he plays out his character and it's just brilliantly done. And I think that all the performances are great, but he is this movie. I agree. John Goodman um, is, is I've, (laughs) he, uh, he, he was in the West wing for a few episodes and uh, his role in those few episodes was very, very good. He has definitely grown to be a diverse actor beyond his role on Roseanne. And like you, I don't know a lot of his stuff apart from just the, the handful of things like that. But I think what you described about having this sense of sympathy for a guy, but also being incredibly afraid of him because he seems demented. He seems crazy. He seems, um, upset clearly, you know, because nobody believes him. But in the midst of all this, um, I don't know if you mentioned this earlier on the show or if you and I had talked about this offline, but that sense of duality, that two things can be true at the same time. And this is something that's not necessarily explored in a lot of storytelling, at least that I've seen, where at the end of the movie, we realize that it's a, a both and. Howard is definitely crazy, but he's definitely right too. Okay. So is he, it's, I, I can't, I can't do it. I can't, I can't resolve that as, as someone who's, who's watching this movie. And, and that's good because I don't think uh, Trachtenberg wanted you to, I don't think he wanted you to resolve saying Howard was a bad guy or Howard was a good guy. No, Howard was Howard. <laughs> we don't know enough about Howard to make a great assumption. Again, it goes back to the disorientation and this just kind of not having all that information there so that we can make our own conclusions. And I think it's hard to, because even the movie is the ending wasn't necessarily happy. I mean, she takes down this alien and then she's driving and we hear over the uh, radio that there's stuff going on in Houston and we see her actually go into the fight into Houston instead of turning away. Um, and, and I think, you know, we, we leave that going, well, great, we're getting a sequel, but I think there's a part of us, at least for me going, no, don't do that. That That's bad. You're going into the fight. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It's not the happy ending. It's not the ending. It's not the resolution that we typically are trying to get, but it's par for the course for, for these guys. I, I see that completely different. And, and, <laughs> Since you brought it up, we might as well just go ahead and talk about the ending because I completely disagree, and I think that it's an incredibly happy ending um, because her character has made the choices that she needed to to grow. And what we see in that decision is a Michelle who, for all of her life, has been running and hiding and trying to get away from her problems. That's what she's doing at the beginning of the film. She's running away from her problems. We don't know exactly what took place, but we know that she's fleeing it. She's just trying not to deal with it. And Mm -hmm. she's given a very clear choice. You can go here 
and help fight or you can go here and help help other people you know like you can be mm-hmm. you can run you can run away from the the problems or you can go toward the fight and she has come into her own now and become this strong heroine character who understands that she has something to offer in the fight and she's not going to back down and it's so much more about like her as a person than it is about her obviously going to fight the aliens or going to you know make a sequel type mm-hmm. i don't think it's going to get a sequel i don't think that's at all what they were intending to, to no, i don't either to get I don't to either. yeah so i i personally resonated with it in a much much different way because for me it is a happy ending it's a it's a stand-up and cheer ending for me i'm like yes th- yes yes that is the right decision you are no longer scared and you are no longer afraid mm-hmm. um, and you are running into the fire and mm-hmm. and that is awesome well i i can agree with that and i think that there's there is definitely a sense of positivity in that but i'm saying that when there's a there's a reason why there's a story beat where she's looking at houston and she's looking in another direction i mean we want her i mean and I might be in the minority, but I, I'm wondering if there are people out there that thought two things might have happened or three things. She went to Houston. That would be the final shot of her turning like she did. There'd be a shot of her going the other way or the shot would just close and we wouldn't know what she was doing. And so I wonder if, you know, what, I mean, if, it, if it's one of those things where you look at this and you, I mean, I didn't want her to run away, but I didn't necessarily want her to run towards it. I, I almost was like, well, if you're going to leave everything else amb- amb- you know, ambiguous, you might as well just close the chapter there. So I think for for me, looking at looking at the ending, I wouldn't. I guess happy isn't the right word because yes, it's a definitely stand up and cheer moment because it's consistent with their character, but it's not necessarily one that's resolved because at this point, we don't know what's going to. Ha- I mean, we're, we're left going, okay, what's going to happen? And we know we're probably not going to get a sequel to this. It's going to be, I mean, because this is a movie and I think Abrams wants this to be like an anthology series where we have these Cloverfield uh, stories, kind of like Twilight Zone episodes. But I think that there's, again, that sense of, okay, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, she could go fight, but we're not going to get the answer to that question. We know she's going that direction. And so we're, again, left to this sort of unknown mystery of, what could happen and it's that it's it's the it's the it's the positivity of going what if and that's the question that's i think asked all throughout the movie up until even the very end what if you know what if she goes to houston and now we're left to go what's going to happen to her and that's up to us to to kind of play that story out but even from the beginning we're like well what if what if she'd stayed down there with howard what if you know, she had complied, you know, what if mm-hmm. Emmett had not gotten into the cellar? You know, ha- there, there are so many great questions that we're left with, but we're left to kind of answer them on our own. And that gives us a little bit of ownership as, as an, as an audience, which can be great or it can be terrible depending on your level of, of involvement and, and resolution with the movie. Yeah. It, it, there are a lot of great what if questions in the film. I agree that it, it kind of revolves around that in a big way um, choices, little choices here and there and, and, and trying to make decisions based on limited amount of information and not being able to know for yourself what is true. 
but yeah, I, I, I totally just read the ending different than you do. And it's, it's, I guess that's, that's part of it. That's why it's so divisive. You know, it's, we are on different playing fields completely when we, when it comes to this, because for me, it's, I, I don't even think about it. Like when you're, when you're, when you're discussing the idea of what might, we don't know what might've happened to her when she goes to Houston. I've watched it three times now and I've never once asked that question. Never once has it even occurred to me. It it just doesn't matter. It, it's, it, it was 100% about the choice that she made to make a left turn. And then that is my ending of the movie. And for mm-hmm. me, that is, that's it. Like that's where it ends. Like that's all that matters in her story because nothing else, whatever occurs is, is neither here nor there, whether it's positive, negative, you know, whether it's win, lose, live, die, it doesn't matter because she made the choice to turn left in my mm-hmm. opinion. And that's, that's how I read it. And so I think, you know, part and uh, another part of that is the, the, the aliens. And so <laughs> I got to tell you, so <laughs> I know you don't like them. So, or you didn't, this was the part that, you know, really kind of pulled it back for you, but I, I love them. Um, Dan Trachtenberg has a fantastic quote about this in the commentaries. And so I'm going to, I'm going to let him say this better than I could ever say this about his film. But he says, you can watch so many movies that don't have our ending, but now there is one that does. And for me, I guess that's what makes this one, you know, top 50 of all time worthy for me is that he's right. He's right. There are a ton of movies that could have been made about the seller and about the concept of John Goodman and not knowing whether Howard was the monster or whether he was right or wrong. But it's what happens when she steps out of the cellar that puts this in its unique territory. Like it, it could have, you know, other movies can be made with the cellar part that are maybe not as well made. You know, they may not be quite as tense as this one, but they can be the same idea. But the, the, what sets it apart is these aliens and so when all of this happens, man, I, I can't get enough of it. Just she comes out of the cellar and she's she's standing there. And it's it's awesome because they're so detailed in their filmmaking. When she comes out, it's light. OK, so it's it's dusk, I guess. Um, dusk is the one when right before it gets dark at night. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <Make> yeah. <sure. laughs> Sometimes I get dusk and dawn confused. Um, so it's dusk and it's still light and it's, it, it gives us this sense of, okay, you know, this is, this is good. This is, this is positive, right? We've, we've Mm -hmm. made it. We have succeeded. And she's wearing her little ducky, um, (laughs) ducky wrapped. (laughs) That was great. That's a great outfit. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. There's a great story in the commentaries about that too. I'm not going to be able to talk about everything I read or listened to. So I highly recommend you guys watch the, the commentary version of this film if you own it, because great stuff in there and and there's some special talk about how they picked that shower curtain but you know she comes out and she's made it and she's she's seeing in the air and she's seeing birds and she's starting to realize like it's okay and then as it progresses and as she looks off and she sees this alien right the the lighting starts to come down and for me it's it's literally the best line of dialogue in the entire film. And one that one of the best lines of dialogue in the entire movie mm-hmm. is when she's standing <laughs> on the car and she looks off in the distance and we see the ship coming toward her. And at first we're, we're right again. We're right there with her. Just like we have been this whole movie. We don't know what's going on. You've said it many times. We're disoriented. We don't know what to believe. Maybe it's a helicopter. Maybe it's, maybe it's okay. Maybe it's good. Right. 
this could be like a rescue ship or something. And then you see tentacles come out of it and you're like, Oh my God. And, and, and she just says, come on. Mm-hmm. And that's all she says. And that for me is an audience relief moment because I'm, I'm in that moment with her and I'm saying the same, same thing, maybe even <laughs> in more colorful language. I'm saying like, are you serious right now? Like, come on, this cannot be happening. And that's why it all just works so well for me. The design of the alien works for me. The moment of it taking her mask off and sucking it, you know, off of her face is an incredible scene. Mm -hmm. And I love it. I love everything about the ending. I wouldn't change it for the world. And I don't think it would be anywhere near as good of a film without it. I think it would be a really good movie, but I don't think it would reach the pinnacle for me. So Mm -hmm. I guess go ahead now and and say your piece, but I I absolutely love it. (laughs) (laughs) And you can't take that away from me. And I, and I won't. And, and I, what I like about what we do is that we can be completely honest about our vantage points. And I looked at that moment and that line right there, it did the, it, it, it resonated with me too, because at that moment I was like, well, okay, here's the rails. And I'm just kind of stepping off of them at this point. And it didn't make me mad. It just threw me out of that moment because at this point in the movie, it's been a psychological thriller. It's been about Howard, the crazy man. And could it be, could it be military and could it be aliens? And (laughs) The the idea of aliens coming in, I remember reading a quote from from Trachtenberg and him saying, wouldn't it be cool if we did this? In some ways, after reading that quote, I was thinking, okay, well, I guess I can make a movie and then just have sort of a bizarre ending as well and hope it works. But that's not, I mean, that's not what he's doing. He's not just saying, let's just throw randomness to it. What I What I was okay with was the fact that it didn't sit well with me and, and still doesn't really that, that, that much, but it, it didn't as, as, as much of left field as it felt like it wasn't so far out there that I felt like it was just kind of thrown in at the last minute. Like I didn't feel like it was lazy storytelling. Like I didn't feel like he was saying, okay, we need to jazz this up a little bit. So let's, Let's create some aliens. Yeah, let's do that. And let's have some tentacles. And, and oh, and let's do, I mean, no, I don't believe that this was happening there because this guy had had, had me in tension for an hour and a half. <laughs> and so I'm going, no way that he just sort of throws this out there to say, we need a different ending because nothing like this has ever been done before. And so watching it again and seeing Howard and seeing how he makes us believe that it could be anything. It could be the military. It could be aliens. And knowing the anthology of a monster in Cloverfield helped me sort of resolve that in my head of going, all right, if if I can believe that anything is possible in this world of Cloverfield, then having an alien come out at the last 10 minutes of a movie where we haven't seen anything like that. haven't seen hints of it at all. We've, we've maybe heard sounds, uh, through great sound editing and, and sound effects. I, I was okay with that. Again, it didn't, it wasn't, my response is obviously not like yours, but it made it better for me knowing that and knowing that, okay, I'm a huge fan of the twilight zone. So by default, every episode I watch, I'm expecting something bizarre. 
And so I needed to get to that place where I'm going, okay, if this was sort of in the same spirit of that type of anthology storytelling, that made it better for me. And it made it more enjoyable, honestly. Right. Agree. And that's that's what makes it fit. And and Abrams actually describes this really well. And he said it was the movie was an exercise in tension and it was like pulling the bow back further and further and further. And then in the third act, letting the arrow fly. And that's that is what it was, you know, in, in such a great summed up one yeah. sentence. Like, that's what happens. You know, yep. it's, it, like you said, it's tense, 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 tense. And it's like, whoo, all bets are off. You know, you mentioned sound editing. I want to I want to hit on a couple technical aspects of this film that I I believe set it apart as well. The sound editing to me is amazing. Um, not just the score because this, these are different things. The score is fantastic. Bear McCreary uh, of Battlestar Galactica fame, and I'm sure some other stuff. But that's where I know him from, um, as well as you, obviously. Um, and we both we've talked about this. How for us this score is very reminiscent of his Battlestar Galactica work and it's it's almost like he has a very distinct style now you can you can tell there's these tones and these these sequences in there that I feel like could just be ripped right out of 10 Cloverfield Lane and put into space and and it would fit like a glove mm-hmm. and then yeah. so the score I think is perfect um, it sets the mood as well as any other score could have done for this film. It, it creates the tension. It adds to it when it needs to. Uh, Michelle's theme in particular is one of my absolute favorite tracks. I, th- th- again, this is, <laughs> this is not something I do listeners. I don't go and find movie scores and start listening to them on my way to work just because, but for some reason this one I did like, I, I wanted to be that immersed in this movie. I wanted to think about what was happening in this movie by listening to the score you know, even when I wasn't watching it, but the sound editing here is phenomenal. Um, the, that title sequence we talked about, uh, it, you cannot get the same experience now because it's out on Blu-ray, but if you saw this film in a the theater, you really were treated to some incredible sound effects. Absolutely. And when you, when you see that, uh, when, when you see what's happening in the, in the sound, it, it What's great about the sound editing is that it's not just a, it's not just something that carries the movie along. Um, I, I think you and I joked about this when it comes to the Oscars. There's an, there are two awards. There's, was it sound editing, and then what's the other award? I think you there's remember? sound design, maybe something. Yeah, sound I can't mixing. Remember. It's mixing. Sound it's mixing. mixing. Right. And so we, I think we went back and forth over text, and we're like, okay, what, what's the difference there? What's going on? And I believe the sound editing, the idea of, of pulling these, these using the sound effects, what Tin Cloverfield Lane does well is that the sound editing, much like the score, becomes supporting actors in this movie. And I think not having the score that we have and not having the quality of sound editing takes away from the tension. It takes away from the ambiguity it takes away from the disorientation and even i mean dude even down to howard's heavy breathing like when he's when he's talking and you hear him almost like he's kind of not gasping for air but it's kind of like the i don't want to call it like the the big guy kind of just just shallow breathing i mean just hearing that between his lines which are few and far between adds to 
the tension of the movie and it makes it great to to experience it makes howard a lot more creepy it's um i think when you mentioned earlier about details of the movie i think there was a there was a moment when she's at the gas station before the big car crash and do we don't we see howard we do at some yep. yeah well, we don't see him but we see his truck and his arm we see his truck yeah window. you know we're asked to put pieces together and those two technical elements help us do that because she mentions a sound and now we're listening for that sound throughout the rest of the movie so we're listening with her um we are we're trying to yeah. see if it's a helicopter we're trying to hear if it's a voice or, or whatever it is and so again it's more stuff that just draws us in and i don't know that a lot of movies will, uh, do that in such a minimalist way mm-hmm. because there was a lot uh, there was a lot to be you know there was not a lot here the less is more technique was just spot on in this movie yeah which you're always going to get you're always going to need, I guess, by default in a one location film, which mm-hmm. is one of my favorite things I've come to realize, not just this one, but over time, I just am really drawn to these stories that are so confined and, and have to be told in this very tight space uh, where your actors, I mean, they got to be actors, they got to act and, and they all do such a great job. I mean, we've talked in depth here about John Goodman, but you know, Mary Elizabeth Winstead as Michelle is phenomenal. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, she's known for being a scream queen, uh, not a a seasoned actress, but you wouldn't believe it or you wouldn't know it from watching this. Uh, She is as good as as anybody you'd see trying to perform this role. And then John Gallagher Jr., who plays Emmett, is just one of my favorites. He Mm -hmm. this role is he's played such different roles. He's you know, we both watch the newsroom. We both love it. He's in that totally different kind of character. And then one of my favorite movies is Short Term 12, which he is a star in. And it's a lot more close to kind of the way that his character is in this. But again, a little bit different. He's just got, he's got a very big range. And from emotionally being able to, you know, act for a certain type of character, uh, he's very good at that. He's Mm -hmm. very good at uh, hitting those notes with not again not a lot of dialogue he doesn't Mm -hmm. have to have a lot of words to get his point across absolutely and he was definitely a great counter to um to goodman's character i think that you have the serious overblown conspiracy theorist couple you know complemented with you have this lighthearted emmett uh funny guy i think the moment that i felt connected to him was at the dinner table when he was saying things like, like he's eating his spaghetti, uh, which by the way, I just, for some reason that dinner scene made me want spaghetti. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. I can believe that. <laughs> and, uh, and so he's sitting there with his broken arm trying to spin his spaghetti on the fork and goes, so, you know, do you guys, you know, you guys written thing. Cause, cause I regret, and he got that great country accent and he goes, I regret not getting a tattoo. Like I get like, you know, Emmett on my forehead, you know, Thug life, you know, this country boy. And I'm trying to imagine this country boy with the word thug life on his forehead. But there were so many moments of 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 humor intermixed in this just tension filled movie that that really added to to my enjoyment of it. And he was a great uh, compliment to that. 
he his his lines which were a few like i love the the scene where he's putting the puzzle together and he can't find the rest of the pieces to the cat it's like hey this cat's gonna go what skydiving or, or whatever <laughs> <laughs> and this cat's got no eyes so i don't think he can i don't think he'll he'll, he'll have a good time with that and he's yeah. it's like he, he has sympathy for this cat in a puzzle um and uh and and so i really really connected with him yeah me too i i think that all three were cast really well and I just, I just think they nailed it on so many aspects of this film. There's really nothing for me personally that was a weak point that I look at and I'm like, oh, I would have done that differently or I didn't like that. I loved it all. The cinematography, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the cinematography because I think that the way that this film was shot, again, going to this one location thing, it's incredibly difficult. But they were able to build this whole set where you know they could run like at the end when Michelle's escaping, she could run from room to room because it's only a couple of rooms that make up this whole set. It's this mm-hmm. bunker, right? This cellar. And so they're able to do that. And it, and it, it allows for much better cohesiveness, like these one takes, right? Where you get to see her running through rooms instead of just like running through one. And then we cut and then we see her in the next one because they're completely different locations. So we get to see some of that stuff and then really just the framing shots in this. I'm not really technically savvy when it comes to the type of lenses that are used. I've heard Trachtenberg talk in depth about this regarding this movie about anamorphic lens versus spherical lenses. And I understand some of it, but for me, what really is the most important here is the fact that there are so many great framing shots where whether it's a close up on a character's face or the camera is above a character looking down. Uh, there's a scene like this in the couple of them from the, the air ducts, mm-hmm. one where Michelle has gotten caught and she's hidden the, the mask up in the air duct. And we're watching Howard reach up for the air duct, trying to reach in there and see what's in there after the, the bolt has you know fallen and hit the ground and alerted him. Mm-hmm. The, the way that those scenes are shot. And then there's a couple shots of, of, uh, Michelle's character when she's leaving the bunker, uh, the opening one where she's going up before the, the crazy woman comes to the door. There's just this, there's this pipe, right? So the entrance is this stairwell in the center of this huge pipe drainage pipe is what it looks like. Mm-hmm. And you'll see the angle shooting straight down the pipe with her on the stairs in the middle of it. I remember uh, that specifically. Yeah. Gosh, I remember man, that. things like that. And then some, there's other overhead shots that they do in this film where, it gives you like a hotel peephole view, mm-hmm. almost like a fisheye um, viewpoint of the characters. And I, I just love it. I think that it's, it's brilliantly shot. Um, again, part of that, I've seen some special features that showed me how amazing getting these things were, but their facial expressions make the cinematography better. If that makes mm-hmm. sense. If, if the actors were not on point, with being able to tell a story with their expressiveness in their, in their face, these close-ups couldn't work, but they work because the actors can make it work. Right. And all three of them have the ability to do that. And so yeah. I think it's a, a beautifully shot film. I mentioned er, you know earlier about how the day to night transition when she comes out of the, um, the bunker 
for the first time and before she sees the alien there's some great visual effects in here when she's going off to houston i don't know if you caught this but there's like a little flash of lightning in the sky and uh-huh. you can see the yeah. mothership love it love it's it so brilliant just yeah little little things like that i thought were majorly enhancing for a film that gosh i mean it's crazy to have been shot so well when you know we spend most of our time just sitting around in a couple of different rooms in a cellar mm-hmm I do a lot with a little, that's for sure. All right. Well, it, it's, safe, it's safe to say that, that you like this movie a little bit. Um, and uh, with all of its technical successes and all the different pieces and parts, was there, was there a particular moment in the movie that, that resonated with you above anything else? Yeah, I would say that my connecting point for this one you know, has to be what – I call the the blue blue pink wall scene, I guess, or the confession scene. Um, and and the scene I'm talking about is when Emmett and Michelle are sitting on opposite sides of this wall. Emmett Emmett's in the storeroom, and it's a blue wall. I don't know if you even picked up on this. I did not. But Michelle's not. Michelle's room has a half pink painted wall, uh, which mm-hmm. is is interesting to me because it makes me think that. Uh, Howard was in the process of painting that pink and creating this room for the girl before her when something went mm. terribly wrong and then he never finished. Lots lots of little details like that 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 really got my mind turning, but yeah, so we have Michelle leaning up against the pink wall, we have Emmett leaning up against the blue wall, and we're cutting back and forth between them and they're talking about regrets and a fear of failing. This scene comes after Howard has been kind of proven to be right so to speak they it's it's the scene before kind of the fun cheerful stuff where they dance and they watch movies and do the puzzle mm-hmm. and it's the scene after michelle watching the crazy lady bang her head on the door and it's when <laughs> it's 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 in this moment where they're starting to wonder if maybe howard is right you know they haven't really they're going through this cycle and they're starting to accept that it could be true and maybe they're just here they're starting to try to figure things out. They need to get to know each other. And so they're, they're opening up to each other. And Emmett's backstory is really interesting to me. He talks about how he stayed put. He could have left on an athletic scholarship, but he didn't have the guts to leave town. And then we hear Michelle's story about how she was abused and how she wished that she would have stepped in to help a little girl this one time in her life. But she couldn't, she couldn't make that choice. Uh, and instead, she quotes panicked and ran. Um, and so, we we see these two characters not only bonding, but they're just they're really the way I look at it is they're they're almost like embracing the suck of this situation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an awful situation. They they don't know what to believe. They kind of have to deal with it as their reality. And so they get to know each other. And man, the way that this whole play thing plays out in the end is is just great because this gives us the depth. It's probably the single most character developing scene for them both. And I guess that's why it resonates with me Mm -hmm. toward the end. Emmett says, look, we're here. We're alive. That means something. It's gotta. Yeah. And it's, it's not only in him being confident and making that proclamation because he's trying to cheer her up, but it's in that, uncertain hope of it's gotta it's like 
it's got to mean something like this is absolute craziness this has to be me it has to be meaningful it has to mean something and so because of how their stories play out because in the end Emmett who didn't have the guts to leave town and didn't didn't do that is able to somewhat redeem himself by taking a stand and and stepping in for her and then we have her who you know was abused and didn't do anything about it and didn't step mm-hmm. in to help another another kid uh, who she knew was in the same situation. She then turns and, again, doesn't panic and run, but she turns toward Houston to go fight. And, I, and so all of that makes this just my most impactful scene of the whole movie for me. Yeah, that's for sure. It, we get a lot of personal growth from each each character, and we get a sense of affection, even if it's just, a brotherly sisterly affection. There's still a genuine affection that they, they have for each other. And that plays into the scene that, that I found was, was my connecting point. I think you make a great point before you say that. I just want to, you just hit on something that I had not really thought about and we haven't mentioned, but I think that that's a very big strength of this film is that Emmett and Michelle, there is no love triangle here. There isn't our love story here. There is no romance. This Mm -hmm. movie does not force itself down that road when it easily could have. And I think probably 90% of lesser movies made like this would have done that. But instead you just hit it. It's a brother and sister. It's a, Mm -hmm. it's a friendship. It's a, we're in this thing together because we have to be, but that doesn't mean we have to like have romantic feelings for each other. And it makes it much more genuine in the end for me because Mm of that. Right. And I think from that from that scene, Emmett's story helped me really connect with him. And again, his his sense of humor let me resonate with him. So the moment that I connected with this movie, the moment that I was ready to kind of grab hold of Michelle's hands and run with her was the moment where Emmett is shot mm. Be- because it was unexpected in some ways. I mean, it was it wasn't unexpected, but you didn't know what was going to happen. You know, Howard pulls this big, you know, liquid death out of out from under the sink, and he shows it to him, and then Emmett stands up for, you know, stands in for Michelle. He says, "It was all me," you know, and he says, "Howard, I'm sorry." He goes, and then he shoots him, and I'm like, "Whoa!" And to get a little, a few more props to the, to the sound editing. We then get that muffled sound that you would probably hear if you, if you had a gun fired right next to your ear. And so we're disoriented. We have that, we have that muffled noise, you know, that we're hearing. And so that's what Michelle's hearing. And then we hear, we see Howard trying to comfort her and, and it just, it, it, for the whole movie, it keep the movie has, has kept, has done a great job at keeping us conflicted as to, hate this guy Howard or to feel sympathy for him. Um, but after that shot, after that scene, I felt like I was on Michelle's side from there on out. I was like, okay, she's okay. I've, I've decided to follow her <laughs> and, you know, by choice in my head, but also because that's where the, the direction was going. You know, you can't, you can't not follow the, the camera. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm tense with her. I'm, I'm, I'm watching her I'm going up the, the vent and I'm just like, Oh my gosh, I'm breathing heavy. And and I feel that tension. And then I was hoping that she would eventually get out. 
And that moment really just, it completely solidified my connection with her through the death of Emmett. And so it's real interesting, you know, we're, we're walking through Michelle's story. I mean, it's really her perspective, perspective. Yeah. That mm-hmm. we're, we're taking for the majority of the film. And it was interesting that, that I resonated with Emmett and it was through Emmett's death that I began to, that I, that, that my emotional connection was reinforced with, with her. Maybe it was because he died and I can't resonate with him anymore, <laughs> but seeing him get shot um, had an emotional impact on me and it it sort of put me into that place where I'm like all right let's let's take down Howard and so when he becomes zombified or whatever as gross as that was I was like yeah <laughs> I lost all sympathy for him at that point <laughs> I think that's fair and I, I yeah I love that scene as well there's there's so many great things happening there just the way that the movie does not telegraph it. it movies movies telegraph everything these days everything's yep. foreshadowed but i didn't see it coming i don't know if you did but with the way that howard pulls the gun out and shoots him it, it, you know right after he's accepted his apology you buy it it's on his face and you buy the apology that it's been accepted and then it's just bam mm-hmm. and, and and it's immediate disorientation like you said um the it just it goes into Howard's character even more and John Goodman's performance there because Howard acts like nothing has happened. There's no regret. There's no stress. Deadpan. Nothing. Absolute dead, yeah. Nothing is there. Right. He does not. Yeah. He completely does not see that he has destroyed Michelle, and he treats Emmett's death as a positive. Like he thinks he's like you know, he, that's a good thing. Yeah. Like the next scene with him giving her ice cream before dinner. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah. Exactly. House. I mean, that what? Disturbing. What? Yeah. Yes. And that's what I meant earlier about how like he doesn't get it. He does not. He truly is not right in the head. It's not all a choice for him. Like he is not there. He's not yeah. the same level of sanity as the rest of us. He's not just a crazy killer who's doing it because it's fun. He does not compute the same way that we compute. Mm-hmm. And th- that scene is another perfect example of that. And then <laughs> I didn't talk about this about the cinematography earlier because I knew you were going to bring this, this scene up later. But when you, when you mentioned, you know, how gory he gets, man, it, when he is dissolving, all I can think about is how we see the acid slowly burning him and his face coming apart. And he starts growling and kind of grunting and he's just Mm. getting more and more gory. And it's like he is slowly being revealed as the monster. That's what I got. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, he's gone from stoic man who is all over the place sometimes, but very, very kind of straight and narrow, very, Mm -hmm. we know what we got at least to he's grunting and growling and he he looks like a traditional horror monster at this point. It's like revealing him. It's showing us what he is inside um, visually. And I, I, gosh, I just loved that. <laughs> and then there were, there were two cool little notes I got to say about that scene too. Okay. One is that John Gallagher Jr.'s girlfriend was on set the day that this was shot. And they were just shooting him over and over and over. <laughs> so like, that's all that was happening that day on, on scene and on the set. And she actually had to leave because she couldn't handle it. It got too emotional for her watching him act out being killed 
Wow. Over and over and over and over. Because when they were shooting it, you know, we don't see him falling, but there are definitely, it was shot that way in case they Mm -hmm. chose to use that edit or that cut. And so she couldn't handle it and she had to leave the set because of that. And then the other thing is if you look really, really close, when Howard goes over to Michelle and he's, you know, talking to her through those, those muffled tones you were talking about, which is so brilliant, so brilliant um, that you can't hear him because the gunshots ringing out Mm -hmm. you can see his earplug (laughs) just barely but you can see that he has an earplug is in his ear uh because obviously he just shot uh, a fake gun and you know safety first so kudos to the bad robot team for making sure that john goodman's uh hearing was not hurt in the making of this film (laughs) that's too funny man. man i got i got so much i could go on all day i got uh, we'll wrap it up. A couple quick things. Damien Chazelle, for you guys who know who that is, he was the director of Whiplash, and he's got a new movie coming out later this uh, winter season that I'm super excited for called La La Land. Um, he was actually attached to direct this film. and really? Yeah, and he left it to go do Whiplash, which this worked out for everyone. Worked out for Damien. His movie is amazing. Worked out for Dan Trachtenberg because this movie is amazing. Um, and the other thing is the sandwich. I don't know if you caught this, Patrick. Did Did you notice what that sandwich was they were making? Is it during the 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 happy montage of them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. just of them decorating and stuff like that. I I didn't notice it too closely. So I kind of noticed it, and I was like, oh, "What is that?" It was peanut butter and and jet puff or marshmallow like fluff. <laughs> well, Dan Trachtenberg is talking about this in the commentaries or in an interview I heard. And he's, he's, he's talking about how this is actually has a name for this sandwich. It's called a fluffer nutter. I Googled it. It's real. <laughs> it's really called that. And a fluffer nutter is peanut butter and marshmallow puff between bread. It's a sandwich. And then there's many, many variations. You know, you can add stuff to your fluffer nutter and, and make it your own, but <laughs> they use that sandwich because Dan Trachtenberg grew up on it. And because he was so in love with it and he wanted everybody to understand why he was putting it in the movie, he ordered Fluffernutters made for the entire crew one day. And so the entire movie making <laughs> crew got Fluffernutters uh, the day that that was shot. That's awesome. <laughs> I, I, that's the stuff, man. I just, I just love it. I just, that kind of, I eat it up. And I know you, you love trivia, so I thought I'd share those. <laughs> Those you didn't literally you. you didn't literally eat it up, right? <laughs> no, but I am going to make a fluffernutter at some point in my life in honor of this. In fact, you know what? The next time I watch it, I'm eating a fluffernutter. Instagram that. That's what I'll that. do. That's what I'll Instagram do. that stuff, man. <laughs> Consider it done. Okay. So any uh, anything in closing before we uh, before we head on out? No, you shouldn't ask me that question because again, I, I could oh, yeah. I could talk about this film all day. And if you want to keep talking about it, please, please, please. Come talk to me in the Facebook group. Um, come come chat with me on Twitter or my Facebook. It's at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E. I'm all over the place. Uh, the show is at Feelin' Film, of course, Twitter, Facebook. But the Facebook group is where most of the discussion is going to happen. I'm all ready to have it. Come tell, me where I, come tell me why you think I'm wrong or please come agree with me and tell Patrick <laughs> why he's wrong. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because we all know that in this case it's him that's wrong yes for for those of you in the minority who want to side with me and and feel okay with that you can find me at shoeless patch s-h-o-e-l-e-s-s-p-a-t-c-h 
on both Twitter and Facebook. And uh, yeah, I think that's, yeah. Yeah, so you? I'm going to put the links for those two shorts in the show notes. So if you yes. look up the show on either iTunes or your podcast catcher, you should be able to click those. If You can go to feelandfilm.com, probably is the easiest way. But I've, yeah. I've linked those YouTube's uh, shorts there because I want you guys to be able to check those out. I'll probably post them in the Facebook group this week as well at some point. And um, next movie, potentially with a Cloverfield tie-in, is coming up next February. Um, I'm almost positive we'll be covering it. It's got a first-time director just like this one did, uh, but it's produced by Bad Robot. It's called God Particle, and it's about... Right now it's called God Particle. Yeah, right now it's... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> cloverfield particle uh it's all about it's all about something going wrong on a satellite in space and uh potential alternate reality type stuff which oh man bring oh, it yeah. on bring Absolutely. it on that's all i gotta say <laughs> well until then i guess we have to we have to to wait and so what better way to wait than by doing another movie and that's going to be up to you guys remember next week is our listener choice episode Go to our Facebook group. If you haven't joined, join, and you will see a poll uh, listing the three movies that we are potentially going to cover, one of which you know we're going to cover, and that's going to be completely up to you guys. So in any case, we're going to have a lot of fun next week with what we're covering. What that will be, we'll find out, uh, thanks to you guys. Yes, we will. But until next time, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.